0: This is an AMI podcast. I'm Jyothi Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Many of us as people with disabilities experience some form of discrimination or prejudice. Sometimes the ableism is overt, other times the prejudice faced by people with disabilities is veiled as concern or admiration. There are many theories about why groups that are socially disadvantaged face some form of prejudice. Apart from people with disabilities, women or the elderly also often deal with paternalistic attitudes. And though many efforts have been made to mitigate the impact of prejudice on the lives of people with disabilities and others, there's always more that can be done to change the ways in which non-disabled people think about disability. Today we discuss disability and prejudice. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio, I'm Jovitha Gupta. As always, it's really good to be with you today, Uh, it's a beautiful morning and I hope you're all staying safe and staying home, taking advantage of the weather improving in most parts of the country, going out for long walks if you can, or getting together with friends and family, certainly taking advantage of the fresh air and the sunshine. One of the things I've often grappled with in my, in my life as a person with a disability, and I think many of us have grappled with it as a community, is the prejudice and the preconceptions that we deal with, often stemming from ideas about disability being something that is problematic and disabled people being the objects of pity. It turns out that a new study published in the Canadian Journal for Disability Studies examines the influence of accessibility on perceptions of people with disabilities. To learn more, we've reached the co-author of the study, Lynn Jackson, who is professor at the Department of Psychology at King's University College at the University of Western Ontario. We've reached her today just outside of London, Ontario. Hello and welcome to the program. Thanks so much for chatting with us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So we're talking today about ableism for, uh, you know, the, the experience of ableism for many people with disabilities and the prejudice that they deal with. As we ease ourselves into talking about your research, how prevalent would you say the prejudice faced by the disability community actually is? What does the research tell us? Well, the research tells us that,
1: you know, prejudice of all sorts really is continues to be prevalent. You know, um, we sort of have... I think a paradox that we see that on the one hand uh, in many ways attitudes are becoming more progressive we have you know better and better laws and protections uh, for people with disabilities and also a variety of other uh, minority groups and and equity deserving groups um, and yet we have continued serious problems you know so um, you know abuse and violence against people with disabilities is higher than against other people um, and but more so, you know, a sort of everyday, day-to-day prejudices and microaggressions. Um, so what the the literature does tell us is that people with disabilities report that exposure to kind of microaggressions, little day-to-day insults, indications of disrespect, are very common, part of everyday experience. Um, and and in terms of the attitudes um, of people who don't have disabilities, you know we see improvements over time. Um, you know massive surveys show us that uh, overt attitudes are improving. Um, but some of the more subtle forms um, of prejudice are really quite persistent and exist in most people, even those those of us who really embrace egalitarian ideals. So there are a variety of kinds of subtle prejudices that psychologists have tried to kind of unpack and, and uh, understand. So that's what our research was looking at some of these kinds of prejudice. Yeah, subtle prejudice.
0: You know, one of the things I've experienced when I'm out on the street, for example, is someone walking up to me and saying, you're so brave. I don't know how you do it. You know, um, who matches your outfits for you? Because I'm visually impaired, right? So when we think about these well-meaning, benign comments, you know, people just being nice even, would you say that that's a form of prejudice or am I taking it to a bit of an extreme? I would consider it a form of
1: prejudice. I would consider it a form of paternalism, right? So, um, you know, you mentioned in your opening that, uh, you know, a number of groups elderly people, people with disabilities, uh, traditional women, are often viewed with a kind of paternalism or pity. And, you know, social psychological research shows that um, many people are kind of viewed as warm and likable and are liked, but not fully respected, right? Not viewed as fully capable. Um, So absolutely, I see that as a form of prejudice. And, you know, it's associated with problematic outcomes, um, for one, people don't like experiencing it, right? It doesn't—it doesn't feel good to be uh, treated as though doing ordinary things is a surprise, right? It kind of implies negative expectations, right? That one shouldn't be able to go about day-to-day life and engage in a job and so on.
0: One of the things that I encountered in your paper when I was reading it is something called the stereotype uh, content model. For those of us who aren't psychologists, what is that, and how does it play into your research?
1: Right. So the stereotype content model is a, a theory of prejudice that helps to explain how um, the, certain groups are on the receiving end of particular kinds of stereotypes. So, you know, one of the things that's clear is that very often prejudice is ambivalent or people's attitudes are ambivalent, right? So um, we might have some very positive views about many groups, but also Negative emotional responses or some components of the stereotype might be negative. Mm-hmm. And the stereotype content model talks about a variety of different kinds of attitudes that, that, um, uh, many people experience. So one kind of, um, amb- ambivalent attitude is envious prejudice. And that's, that's not one that is typically associated with, um, disability, but it's ambivalent, right? So some groups are, uh, viewed as highly capable, but not, uh, warm and, and kind and nice. So, unfortunate and inappropriate and incorrect stereotypes of, um, of Asians, for example. So, we see a lot mm. of anti-Asian racism lately. Sometimes reflect this envious prejudice. Mm. Uh,
0: with,
1: with disability, it's kind of the reverse, it's the, the flip side kind of, um, ambivalence that, that, uh, where we see paternalistic attitudes toward disability, it's because people with disabilities are viewed as warm and likable, but not fully capable. Mm-hmm. So that's where emotions like pity are thought to arise, um, and problematic kinds of behaviors, like the example that you shared, um, or, you know, helping people who don't need or want help, where that kind of arises from that sort of ambivalence. And the stereotype content model, the thing that's interesting about it is it shows that um, many groups face serious, similar kinds of, of prejudice. So people with disabilities, elderly people, traditional women uh, face this kind of paternalism because these groups share some similar experiences in our social environment, right? So the social environment uh, plays a role in generating these kinds of attitudes, and that's why the attitudes are shared across groups, not because the, the groups particularly share similarities, uh, but their social environment is similar.
0: And in your study, you're looking to try and understand some of these social attitudes. So how did you go about figuring out the, the relationship between environmental accessibility and uh, the perception of people with disabilities or the degree of prejudice that a person with a disability might face? What were you trying to do with your study?
1: So, uh, yeah, so this is a study that um, I conducted with Julia Suderman, uh, a former student at King's and she was really interested in the emotion of pity and you know why people sometimes feel pity for people with disabilities um and you know it seems clear to us that pity assumes a kind of superiority or over another that's not justified so in our experiment we were looking to see where that comes from and you know as i was uh, talking about in relation to the stereotype content model um we felt that it comes from the environment. So in the case of people with disabilities, the level of accessibility in the environment. Mm -hmm. So where full and complete accessibility is not present, people with disabilities may not be able to reveal their capabilities, capabilities which they fully have, right? So... Others may view them as less than fully capable, or stereotype them as less than fully capable, experience pity, benevolence, um, because of what the environment allows. So we were trying to test that—that that it's the it's it, it's the viewing people navigating in an environment that either is or is not fully accessible, which shapes uh, the attitudes of people without disabilities toward those with them.
0: I'm with Lynn Jackson today, who is the author of a new paper and some research that looks at the influence of accessibility on perceptions of people with disabilities. So, Lynn, we've talked a lot about the why of your study, but I'm curious about the how. So how did you actually go about conducting your research?
1: Yeah, so we used a fairly simple experimental paradigm where um, university students read scenarios in which they imagined... Uh, observing a person in a variety of kinds of contexts. And then we ask them to tell us about their impressions of the person. So the scenarios always involved a person with a disability. So a person with a a mobility disability, a person who is blind or a person who is deaf. It's doing something simple like crossing the street, entering a a university classroom. um, And uh, we altered the environment. So for uh, some of the people, they read about a person navigating effectively because there was an appropriate accommodation. So for example, um, a student who is deaf in a university class fully participating with an interpreter. Mm-hmm. Or, other students read about uh, someone who was unable to navigate their environment properly because of the lack of accessibility, so a deaf student in a class without an interpreter who couldn't function properly um, and and then so students read a variety of scenarios like this, and then they told us what their impression of the person was um, and they they told us what they thought the person's capability was, what kind of emotional reactions they had to the person when they read about them, and so on.
0: And what did you find?
1: So we found what we predicted, which was that the accessibility of the environment made a significant difference. So Uh, In general, perceptions of the individuals described in the scenarios were more positive where the environment was described as accessible. So the individuals Mm -hmm. were viewed as more competent, more warm, uh, and also the participants in the research reported less pity for them uh, in those conditions as compared to when the environment was described as inaccessible. We also, I should mention, included a, a sort of a control group where in the scenario uh, the there was no reference to accessibility at all, there was just an individual. And that allowed us to determine whether we were improving attitudes with accessibility or damaging attitudes with inaccessibility. And on the whole, what we found was it was both, that relative to sort of a neutral condition uh, where a, a person with a disability was simply there and was observed, accessibility improved attitudes, uh, but inaccessibility made them worse.
0: Hmm. There's a very common perception out there that to combat prejudice or discrimination against people with disabilities, it's about changing attitudes. Uh, so, you know, trying to invite non disabled people to think through their attitudes and their preconceptions about people with disabilities. Do you support that point of view based on your research, or do you think we need to go a bit further in our efforts to integrate people with disabilities and not just look at maybe attitudes, although that's important, but maybe go beyond that as well? Yeah, I think both
1: are tremendously important. Um, you, you know, it's very common to hear uh, kind of the idea that we should start with the children, right, and and mm. you know work on promoting positive, respectful attitudes in kids. And I think that's great, and it's really important, and we should do it and we should engage with um, initiatives with adults to improve attitudes and so on. But that's not enough. I mean, if if prejudice arises in significant part from the environment, if we don't change the environment, we will be forever trying to change attitudes, right? So I think mm-hmm. we absolutely have to do both. Um, and uh, changing the environment is the most direct way to not only create social justice, but also to to change attitudes. Um, so, yes, I see accessibility as uh, obviously necessary in and of itself for reasons of justice and equality, but also as kind of a, a, a tool in the psychologist's toolbox for reducing prejudice, a very important one, I think.
0: Yeah. It's such an interesting shift away from the way a lot of us think about psychology as being rooted in the individual. In fact, you know, if you were a person, if one is a person with a disability, you start a new job or you start at college or university. I'm sure you're familiar with this. The very first thing they do is talk to you about an individualized accommodation plan. Is there a need for psychologists and counselors and the people who work with people with disabilities to broaden their thinking beyond uh, what an individual might need to succeed in an inaccessible world and maybe use some of your research to uh, push as a matter of policy for broader change across the board?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point, you know, and um, there are many academics outside of psychology who are doing the really kind of progressive work in which, um, you know, I think that the, the thrust of an argument with respect to disability is that we should change how we define disability, right? So mm-hmm. the conventional understanding of disability is that it is a, a characteristic that a person has. Um, another way of thinking about it that is quite common outside of psychology and psychologists are starting to think about is that um, disability resides in, in a, a social environment that doesn't mm-hmm. allow for everybody who is part of that environment to flourish. So I think, you know, in our scholarship, we need to, to shift to that kind of understanding of Difference in disability, um, mm-hmm. and also that in, in the workplace and so on in terms of what that means for what we do, right? So mm-hmm. in universities, we're moving, uh, more and more toward, um, universal design, for example, right? So mm-hmm. I am trying, I try to structure my classes so that they work for everybody, uh, not just that there is one standard way of doing things and some individuals have accommodation. Uh, that doesn't make sense. It's not optimal from an educational point of view. It's, it's not creative. Um, and it mm-hmm. simply doesn't make sense. It doesn't correspond with the nature of people who are part of the, the community.
0: One of the things I've been thinking about when I was reading your paper is, you know, I get the argument when it comes to physical disabilities, right? I mean, the scenarios that you looked at involve a person who is in a wheelchair. There's a, a person who's blind and another person who's deaf. But when you start to think about someone with a mental uh, illness or a mental disability or a non-visible disability of any kind, doesn't that prove to be a bit of a game changer as well? After all, their barriers are not visible. And so it stands to reason that you can't really apply the argument to uh, disabilities that are not visible.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think to some extent we can extend the logic, right? So, um, you know, if you think of psychological disorders, for example, they, you know, to some extent uh, exist on a continuum. We all struggle. And then at some point, individuals experience serious illness. But everyone needs flexibility, for example, in the workplace or in the education Mm -hmm. system as a function of their well-being. So arguably, many of our Workplace policies, for example, could be more flexible in relation to supporting well-being. Um, and to the extent that we do that, um, you know, have, you know, a flexibility with respect to individuals' um, working schedules or ability to take time off, then there's less and less attention to who has what illness and simply, you know, uh, how people are structuring their working environment. Mm-hmm.
0: If you were to look back on your research, now that it's all done and you've published the the results, apart from the fact that you probably hope that people will replicate the study, what else are you hoping that people will take away from the research? What applications do you see for the study and for what you found?
1: Well, you know, in addition to kind of, you know, thinking about what we need to do to change attitudes, changing the environment, I think... um, I would like to see this information become part of anti-bias work that's used in, in educational and work settings, right? so that anti-bias education and social justice work become combined. I think that's really the, the, the key outcome that I would like to see.
0: That's a really interesting point. Uh, But one other thing I'll ask you and just, you know, we'll leave it there. But, I, I, you know, there's a lot of research in psychology that's gone into stereotypes and and studying group differences. How much research has actually gone into people with disabilities? Uh, You know, is this a relatively new area of inquiry because i know there's been a lot of research into you know race and the perception of uh of racialized people for example but i can honestly say i think this is the first study that i've encountered where we're we're explicitly talking about people with disabilities oh well i mean you're quite right that
1: there is a great deal more research on um attitudes toward racialized people, attitudes about gender, and so on. But there is a significant literature on um, attitudes toward people with disabilities. A lot of the recent research has looked at, you know, different kinds of subtle prejudice. So there's a lot of talk these days about implicit bias, for example, which Mm -hmm. psychologists understand as... Kind of a, a kind of emotionally rooted prejudice that people don't necessarily understand in themselves, right? So we can call it unconscious. It's not necessarily truly unconscious, but but kind of unconscious. But ways that we may perceive others through a biased lens and so on. And there's mm. there, quite a bit of research looks at implicit attitudes toward people with disabilities. One of the disheartening things about that research is that we see that. Um, you know, while sort of more overt attitudes are becoming more positive over time, implicit prejudices are persisting. They're, they're more resistant to change. And that seems to be particularly true in the case of disability, uh, perhaps because we're not giving as much attention to disability attitudes as we should in the public sphere.
0: Well, Lynn, it's been great chatting with you about your study. It was really interesting to read and I've enjoyed having a chance to go over the results and uh, chat with you about it. Thank you so much for speaking to us today.
1: You're very welcome. It was my pleasure.
0: Lynn Jackson is a professor in the Department of Psychology at King's University College of the University of Western Ontario. She joined us today from London, Ontario. If you missed any of my conversation with Lynn, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. You can also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. And of course, you can find out, you can always give us some feedback about this show and other content that we've had on the program by finding us on Twitter, uh, right to at AMI-audio, use the hashtag Pulse AMI. I'd like to thank Lynn Jackson for being my guest on the program today. Nasreen abdul Majid is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day.